0: Welcome to an overdrive version of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. Today's podcast is going to be the continuation of the memoirs from Nikita Khrushchev on what went on between the Soviet Union and China to cause this major schism. And this is really apropos because what we're talking about in the regular episodes is, you know, here and there part of the breakdown between the Soviet Union and and China. These were the two great communist superpowers. They had differing views of what was going on. Khrushchev wanted to thaw the relationship in the Cold War with the United States and the other Western powers, whereas Mao Zedong was the exact opposite. He wanted to antagonize them. And he did not like the fact that Khrushchev, one, had done the uh, secret speech against Joseph Stalin, and two, that he was normalizing, or at least trying to normalize relationships with the uh, West. So this uh, podcast is on uh, Nikita's remembrance of his first visit to Peking. Remember, they used to call it Peking, and now it's called Beijing. So know that there's a difference, but this we're going to go with the original of the way it used to be written. In the first years after Stalin died... Mao Tse-tung treated us with friendship and respect. When I say us, I mean the leadership formed after Stalin's death. In 1954, the Central Committee and the Council of Ministers decided I should lead a governmental delegation to Peking. In addition to Bulganin, who was the chairman of the Council of Ministers, the other delegates included Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan, Shevrenik. Minister of Culture, Furtseva, Shalepin, the editor of Pravda, and Nazriddinova, who represented the Uzbek people. We were scheduled to arrive in China in time for the celebration of the Chinese people's victory on October 1st. The Chinese leaders gave us a warm welcome. We were pleased to be on Chinese soil for the first time and to have a chance for discussions with our Chinese comrades. Many of us encountered new customs. I remember, for instance, that the Chinese served tea every time we turned around. Tea, tea, tea. You couldn't sit down at a meeting without their putting in front of you a cup with a lid. And according to Chinese tradition, if you didn't drink it up right away, they'd take that cup away and put another one in front of you over and over again. Finally, they'd bring you a steam towel to wipe off your hands and face. The towel was refreshing, I have to admit. We weren't accustomed to such ceremonies, but we went along with them out of respect for our hosts. However, enough was enough, and after a while I refused to drink any more tea. First, because it was green tea, which I'm not accustomed to, and second, I can't take that much liquid. Bulganan, on the other hand, did what was expected of him by his hosts. As a result, he developed insomnia. The doctor examined him and asked, Have you been drinking green tea? Yes. How much? A lot. If you go on drinking tea in such quantities, you'll lose even more sleep. You'll either have to cut down on your tea drinking or cut it out altogether. It contains a small dose of a toxic substance, which makes you sleep badly. Bulganan followed the doctor's advice and later told me he was sleeping normally again. Bulganin followed the doctor's advice, and he went on, and the trip became normal. In our talks with the Chinese, our general concern was the protection of the Soviet Union, the other socialist countries, and China. In order to maintain our defense posture, we had to contribute to the industrial development of the great Chinese people, and therefore we arranged for increased economic aid. We agreed to send military experts artillery, machine guns and other weapons in order to strengthen China and thus the socialist camp. In short, we tried to accommodate the Chinese in as many of their requests as our own material situation would allow. Our efforts were united against a common enemy. One foe, Japan, had been defeated but was still a potential threat. A far greater threat came from the United States which had already unleashed war in South Korea, right on the edge of China. We also made an effort to put our relations back on a friendly and equal basis. We conducted official talks on the Port Arthur Agreement. On this matter, I fully agreed with our Chinese comrades. They were absolutely right that Port Arthur was on Chinese territory, and that we should keep our forces there only as long as it was and the mutual interest of the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China for us to do so. We'd spent a lot of money renovating the fortifications in Port Arthur, equipping it with the latest weapons, and stationing a sizable garrison there. We also had troops in Dalney. We said we wanted to remove our troops from Port Arthur and Dalney and hand over to the Chinese all our installations there, with the exception of the very expensive shore batteries we'd just installed. Mao replied that he didn't think it was the right moment for us to pull out of Port Arthur and Dalney. He was afraid the United States might try to take advantage of such a move and attack China. Comrade Mao, I said, we doubt the U.S. will do anything like that. Of course, we can't give you any guarantees, since the United States has just ended its aggressive war in Korea and is still conducting an aggressive policy. But if we withdrew our forces from Port Arthur... They'd be nearby in Vladivostok, so we could come to the rescue in case you were attacked. After more discussion, Mao agreed, saying, If you think this is a good time to pull out, we won't stand in your way. We agreed upon a draft of a new treaty stipulating the withdrawal of our troops. Sometime later, Chow and Lai asked us, What would you think about leaving your heavy artillery behind in Port Arthur? We wouldn't have minded obliging if the Chinese had been willing to pay for the guns, but Chao asked us to hand them over free. Camrade Chao, I said, please understand the awkward position in which we find ourselves. We haven't yet recovered from a terribly destructive war. Our economy is in shambles, and our people are poor. We'd be happy to sell you this artillery for a low price, but we simply can't afford to let you have it for nothing. Please try to see our side of the question, and don't insist on those conditions. That's where the matter rested. The Chinese didn't raise the subject again. We liquidated the international organizations and the equal treaties between our countries. We gave up our rights to the Chinese-Soviet Railroad in Manchuria. I don't remember whether we just handed it over to them or whether we sold it to them cheaply. But in any event, the Chinese took over the management of the railroad. I believe this was a correct decision on our part. If you don't want to create conflicts with other socialist countries, you shouldn't have your own installations on their territories. The Chinese raised another issue. They said the railroad connecting the Soviet Union and China by the way of Ulaanbaatar didn't meet their needs. I couldn't understand why it was no good to them since it had been most useful for us. Before we'd always had to transport our cargo through the Far East. The Ulan batur line considerably shortened the route and connected Moscow directly with Peking. Nevertheless, the Chinese said they wanted a different route, one which would cross our border near alma which would cut through the regions of China that had rich deposits of minerals. We said we'd undertake the construction of the railroad on our side of the border if the Chinese would build it on theirs. Our portion was fairly short, and the conditions were good. Besides, our workmen were better trained and better equipped than the Chinese. It took us no time at all to finish our stretch. The Chinese, however, soon realized they had a tough nut to crack, and they just weren't up to the job. Chow and Lai came to talk the matter over with us. The Chinese always delegated Chow to raise unpleasant matters with us. First, because he was their prime minister, and second, because he was a masterful diplomat. What would you think, said Chow, if we asked you to take over the construction of some of the railroad on our side of the border? And, at our own expense, no less. That changed everything. We were completely unprepared for such a proposal. We had no idea how much it would cost but we could be sure it would be a fairly expensive way to pass the time of day. We could see from the map that we'd be having to erect bridges and dig tunnels, all of which would cost us dearly. The unpleasant task of turning down our friends fell to me. I'm terribly sorry, Comrade Chow, but there's no way we can undertake the construction of the railroad on your territory. We have too many economic problems of our own. We simply can't afford it. And so the matter was dropped then and there. But our decision to refuse the Chinese request was like another stone on the scales of our relations, and it tipped the balance further against friendship. I knew that financial accounting shouldn't get in the way of friendship, but friendship is one thing, business is another. As long as each government has to serve its own people first and foremost, such disappointments are unavoidable in one country's relations with another. Nevertheless, as I say, the incident added to the strain which was building up between the Soviet Union and China. For our part, we had a proposal to make to the Chinese. We wanted to help them with their severe unemployment problem. At the time, our ministers were of the opinion that we had a labor shortage in Siberia. This was before we realized that we were simply utilizing our own labor force inefficiently, and that in order to tap the riches of Siberia, we had to attract workers from the European part of Russia. We proposed that a million or more Chinese workers be sent to Siberia to help us take advantage of the vast timber resources there. Mao's response to our proposal was typical of him, and indicative of what was to come. He really knew how to put us down. First, you have to imagine what Mao was like in person. He moved as calmly and slowly as a bear, swaying from side to side. He would look at you for a long time, then lower his eyes and begin talking in a relaxed, quiet voice. You know, Comrade Khrushchev, for years it's been a wildly, widely held view that because China is an underdeveloped and overpopulated country, with widespread unemployment, it represents a good source of cheap labor. But you know, we Chinese find this attitude very offensive. Coming from you, it's rather embarrassing. If we were to accept your proposal, others might get the wrong idea about the relationship between the Soviet Union and China. They might think that the Soviet Union has the same image of China that the capitalist West has. Obviously, Mao wanted to make us sorry we'd raised the question. It was most disagreeable for us to hear him talk this way, especially to hear him compare us to the capitalists. After all, we hadn't beaten around the bush. We'd come right out and presented a proposal that we sincerely believed was in the interests of the Chinese because it would have helped them get rid of some of the extra mouths to feed. By agreement with my comrades, I was conducting these talks on behalf of our delegation, so at our next meeting I said, Comrade Mao, we certainly had no intention of creating difficulties for you. We certainly don't insist on our proposition. If you feel it would damage China's national pride, then by all means forget we mentioned it. We'll make do with our own workers. When we came back to Peking after a tour of the country and a visit to Harbin and Mukden, the Chinese representatives dragged up the matter of using Chinese labor in Siberia. Our Soviet comrades replied that Mao was against the idea. The Chinese then came back with an official message to the effect that Mao was now willing to help us by accepting our original proposal. We were sorry we'd ever suggested the idea, but since we'd been the first to propose the plan, we couldn't very well back down now that the Chinese had agreed. Otherwise, we would have had to explain to the Chinese why we changed our minds, and that would have added insult to injury. So reluctantly, we agreed to go through with the treaty and let the first batch of about 200,000 Chinese laborers come to work in Siberia. As soon as their time was up, we deliberately avoided initiating negotiations for any further treaties. However, the Chinese themselves began pressing us to import more workers into Siberia despite what Mao had said about resenting China being used as a cheap labor pool. Why don't you let us send some more, they said. Don't be bashful. We're glad to help you. At a later meeting with Mao, I apologized for having overestimated our need to import labor. We made sure that once the contracts for the Chinese in Siberia had expired, they weren't renewed, and the workers went home. What had the Chinese been up to? I'll tell you. They wanted to occupy Siberia without war. They wanted to penetrate and take over the Siberian economy. They wanted to make sure that the Chinese settlers in Siberia outnumbered Russians and people of other nationalities who lived there. In short, they wanted to make Siberia Chinese rather than Russian. It was a clever maneuver, but it didn't work. Next time, we're going to go over the visit of Mao, to Moscow, and you know that will continue on the idea of what the rifts were that were developing between the Soviet Union and Communist China. I hope you enjoyed that, and uh, as always, das vidanie, i spasibo bolshoya.